0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Spotting Science That Just Doesn't Add Up by Dr. Nick Brown and first broadcast live on the 21st of May 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support
1: uh hi thank you for that introduction so uh yeah greetings from beautiful downtown palma de mallorca uh where it's a lovely evening um so i hope everyone can see my slides and i'll occasionally glance over here at them but my uh uh, camera is on the laptop over here so apologies for the the back and forth um so uh we call this talk spotting science that doesn't add up and just a, a few adventures in in terrible terrible science i appreciate the average uh the average skeptics in the pub talk mostly consists of uh, identifying terrible non-science or terrible pseudoscience. So what you're about to see is uh, actual laboratory science conducted by actual working scientists. Um, That really isn't all that great. Um, So I always like to start my talks by finding the key or finding the keyboard. Here we are. So I always start a talk with a conflict of interest disclosure. And the reason I do this is because you will go to conferences sometimes and the things that are on this, slide will not necessarily be true of every speaker so i'm not getting a fee for this talk no matter how much you put into the into the tip jar um uh, i have not received any funding to conduct any of the research that were to the extent that it is my research it isn't all my research uh i do not perform paid consultancy on any of these topics and i am not currently receiving book royalties related to any of these topics and when i say currently i don't that i'm not about to either so yeah brian gave me a little introduction so i'm a i'm a i was a computer guy I got my uh, degree in computer science in 1981, which is a very long time ago. I'm 59 years old. Uh, And uh, I had a career in IT and HR, and I I studied uh, something called applied positive psychology, which is a a whole bad science topic in itself, really. Uh, And then I last year got my PhD in uh, health psychology at the University of Groningen, which doesn't have an eeeh. And this is my... uh, My thesis, Dutch theses come in the form of nice little uh, 24 by 18 centimeter books. And uh, quite a lot of the effort goes into designing the cover. Um, Yes, I was 31 years between graduating with my bachelor's and and going to do my master's working outside academia. I read my first scientific paper in 2011. I'd never read a scientific paper before then. Uh, Currently, I have an affiliation at Linnaeus University uh, in Sweden, where I've never been. I was going to go there in April, but stuff happened. And I am not very good at PowerPoint. Design, Which is actually quite good because uh, the, we get guidelines for how to prepare these talks and we're invited to not put too much in the way of busy backgrounds and too much on each slide. And I don't. I just leave everything to the default. So, yeah, if you think pseudoscience is bad, uh, working scientists have to uh, deal with on a daily basis with perverse incentives. And basically almost everything about the the way in which scientists work is, is almost perfectly set up to oppose Uh, the creation of good science just because it has to take place in a society where things like money and prestige are important um i I know for the average skeptic one of your i I used to be on the fridge of the skeptic movement but i wouldn't kind of identify fully with it but you know one of the important things is to be able to say to somebody uh yeah has that been in a peer-reviewed journal and peer review is perhaps necessary but it's massively insufficient as any form of gatekeeping to to bad science um so major errors, uh, recklessness on the part of authors, and, and even outright fraud uh, are not uncommon. And uh, you might want to keep some of that in the back of your mind <clears throat> as we go through these examples. These problems are often hiding in plain sight. And I'm going to be showing you a couple of ways in which absolutely everybody here, even if you don't have any scientific training, really, um, can contribute to, uh, to, to identifying bad science. So our first example is an article which is the the short reference et in de soso et al twenty twenty so this is an article in a journal called nature scientific reports now nature scientific reports is kind of um the nature reserve squad if you send a paper to not many people I think send directly to nature scientific reports, but if you have a great idea for a paper and you send it to nature and they haven't got room or they don't think it's quite going to get in, they say, well, why don't you send it to our sister journal where we only charge you one thousand eight hundred and seventy dollars article processing charges when your article is accepted. Nature is free, but subscribers pay for that. But it's a, it's what's called a mega journal. It accepts it's it's a big 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 journal. It's an online only journal. You can't buy a paper version of it. So this article, Nature Scientific Reports, is considered a pretty good journal. It's it's yeah, it it comes with all the hallmarks of the of the Nature publishing group. So this article claimed to show a strong relationship between gaming and health, and there were four health outcomes: so insomnia. Sleepiness, which I guess kind of the opposite, but you don't want to have it be insomniac and you don't want to be sleepy. Uh, depression and anxiety in, in a large number of um, gamers in nine African countries. Uh, the, now, the, the, the relationship was remarkably strong. In fact, it was incredibly strong. Uh, basically, the, uh, the amount that you gamed, you played video games, explained about 80 to 85 percent of the variance in all of those outcomes between these people. Only only gaming explained that. So that's an incredibly strong relationship. Uh, this article had 16 authors uh, from 12 different institutions in eight countries on three continents, which by any uh, accounts is a, is a, a pretty uh, impressive international collaboration. And uh, yeah, you didn't see that. So it's not a very good paper, let's say. Let's have a look. Why not? Uh, the statistics in this paper are completely incoherent. Here is the top of the principal table of results. And you may not be totally familiar with this, so I'll take you through what some of these things are meant to do. So these are the summaries of uh, a regression analysis. And uh, the first thing that should happen in the table that summarizes a linear regression analysis is that uh, the coefficient divided by the standard error should equal this ratio called t. That's the definition of that ratio t. It's the coefficient divided by its standard error. Um, So this number divided by this number, which give or take rounding is about 400, should be equal to this number. But it really isn't. Um, This number divided by this number, 5.8, 5.9 is not 53. This number divided by this number is not 70 and so on. And you go down the whole table. None of them are even close. Uh, Another example, this confidence interval is a measure of the error around, of the uncertainty around the, um, the regression coefficient. Uh, and so this number should be between this number and this number. So let's have a look. 0. 0.861. Is it bigger than minus 0.21? Is it smaller than 2.458? Yes, we got a hit. One of the numbers actually is coherent. Next line, 5.98? No. Next line, 10.6 between? No. So they got lucky with one. So none of these numbers bear any relationship to anything that might actually have come out of a real regression analysis. Uh, Another problem, a lot of the statistics are duplicated. So this is the entire table of results, and I've split it into into two columns. Uh, And there are four models, so one for depression, one for anxiety, one for insomnia, one for sleepiness. So each a quarter of these, each of these is a model. The label says model one because they weren't paying attention, but it was actually model three. And each of those little colored sections represents an area where the same variable in, the same, in a different model had exactly the same regression coefficient or other statistic to three decimal places, which really shouldn't happen very often. So for example here, almost all of those numbers for the, uh, the influence of education on these variables are the same between um, insomnia and, uh, and anxiety. Uh, all four of these numbers the same it's almost as if somebody started off with a fake table of numbers and then copied them and got a bit sloppy about changing all of them but i couldn't possibly comment Um, now a big problem when you're trying to look at at bad science is it's it's very it's quite common for you not to have a copy of, of the data set um still in the 21st century it's not a requirement to share your data or to make it available even to the reviewers at many journals um and there's a note in the article saying that data are available on request from the author. And I know a couple of people have tried to request them from the author and various uh, ex- reasons that one might uh, class under the general heading of the dog at my homework have been offered. Uh, however, I managed to get hold of a copy and um, it's a, it's an Excel table. There's a there's a sheet for each of the nine countries. And here's, a, here's an extract from one of the countries. So, um You can see it's columns Q, R, S, and T. So there's plenty of other variables off on the left. Here is the participant number, the the, the row number. Um, So this is somewhere in the middle of the table. This is the score. So the way it worked was that people reported how much insomnia they suffered, how much sleepiness they suffered. So here's the score for insomnia, uh, sleepiness, anxiety, and depression. And you can see they're all sort of numbers in in a range, and we're going to do some analysis with them. Um, here's the next few lines of the table. So this person apparently had a, an anxiety of score of 8. And here in the data set is a formula saying that this person's sleepiness score is their anxiety score minus 2. Um, it is not clear how this formula got there by accident. It is, of course, entirely consistent with the, the idea that the whole data set was fabricated by inserting formulas to rapidly calculate one variable based on another and that some of the formulas didn't get eliminated at the end. So awkward, awkward. Okay. So that's a, that's a fairly, and again, I, most of that was spotted because you just look at the table of the regression results and they don't obey the rules that they should, but that's maybe a little bit complicated if you don't know how to read regression tables. Now, how could this have happened? Well, here is Richard White, the editor-in-chief Uh, of nature scientific reports and you can find a a seven minute youtube video of him Uh, i've uh, stopped the video at this point as you can see the subtitle where he talks about um the rigorous peer review processes we have on the journal that ensure we only publish high quality robust science um which raises the question should the reviewers have seen all this now uh, in my experience, most reviewers don't look at the statistics. They kind of assume that the uh, authors have done that correctly. Should they do it? Not clear. Reviewers don't get paid. And um, it's it's difficult enough for editors to get reviewers for papers anyway. But perhaps they should have been alerted by the enormous effect sizes that were in this paper. And as a, a technical term there, R squared or greater than 0.8. That's a huge effect for those who don't know, the. If they had been trying, uh, I've seen the peer review reports, and I think it is entirely possible, and this is speculative, but I would put some money on it, that the article was actually reviewed by the author himself, the lead author himself, uh, because this journal allows you to suggest or uh, people who might be interested in reviewing your paper. And we know that this author controls a number of sock puppet accounts that he uses to uh, write, write fake um articles with so it's quite possible that this article where the robust peer review was carried out by the author himself okay um another case so well, i don't know if this name is familiar to you it may have become really you might recognize the uh the person's face this is professor didier Raoult, and uh he is director of a lab of 200 people uh, in marseille he is probably most famous as the person who has been advocating for the use of uh Uh, a chemical called hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. It was a a study by this uh, doctor that uh, had President Trump getting all excited several weeks ago and has got all of the people who think that this is going to solve the problem uh, advocating for it. Um, He has 3,000 publications, according to Google Scholar, about 2,300 according to some of the other indexes. Um, That's an awful lot of publications. His lab basically publishes a... an article a week and his name is on all of them um and sometimes he doesn't publish very good work so in 2006 uh, his entire lab was banned from the uh, journals of the american society of microbiology because he'd been duplicating images and um i want to show you now what duplicating of images means so this article from the same lab here is dr holt uh, on it uh from 2016 so different incident maybe and what we're going to try and do in this experiment is we're going to see whether particular monoclonal antibodies can enable us to detect a particular uh, a particular parasite called borrelia or a borrelia there's a whole load of Borrelias. there's one that causes lyme disease um in a, in the, the blood of patients and um this apparently if we could do it with monoclonal antibodies would be a useful thing to do i'm not a biologist so here are four panels uh, from uh, a figure uh, in that uh, article. And basically, um, a, a and C and B and D, uh, both A and C are one kind of antibody and B and D are another kind of antibody. And then uh, A and B are one kind of bacteria and C and D are, are another kind of bacteria. So it's a two by two. And we're trying to demonstrate that all four uh, completely different samples can detect with varying degrees of accuracy uh, these Borrelia parasites. Um, but something interesting happens if you look at these images closely. If you look at this image here, you'll see that if you shrink it a little bit and squeeze it from the top, it appears exactly in panel B. Um, and you can do that, see that maybe more clearly by zooming in on this kind of, I don't know, should we call it a reverse, a reverse figure two? there and there you can see that those two are identical even though these are completely different samples of uh, of bacteria uh with completely different antibodies and if you look you'll see that also that pattern is reproduced entirely in panel d so we've basically got fractal bacteria here so um yeah this is uh this is extremely common or way more common than it should be in very large uh, areas of, of biomedical research uh, researchers include images to prove what they saw. And because they didn't see what they saw, they fake the images. Um, here is the, the current world champion. I think of this is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Bick, an absolute hero of science. Um, she lives in, she's Dutch. She lives in California. Uh, she, uh, over the period of a couple of years until 2016, examined 20,000 articles from the biomedical literature um, found 4% of them had evidence of manipulated images. That's 800 papers. This is an enormous amount of work, because they've all got a lot of pictures in them. And she she looks for the kind of things, that duplicates the, that we saw. Um, she reported those 800 articles to the journals, who are all, of course, dedicated to uh, the production of correct and valid and robust science. And after five years, 30% of those articles had been retracted. So there are still a calculation 560 articles out there that have contain manipulation, manipulated images and have not been retracted from the literature, despite the fact that the authors committed at least some degree of fraud during the preparation of that article, um, which is, I think, worrying. Um, uh, Elizabeth is uh, pretty feisty sometimes on Twitter and, uh, she looks at other, other issues, so she's been criticizing also the hydroxychloroquine uh, studies. So here she is commenting on a, a recent study, not from Raoul's laboratory, that showed that hydroxychloroquine actually had higher death rates than, than the placebo treatment. Um, and this is actually Didier Raoul's Twitter account. This is, this is his verified account. This is, uh, uh, and he came in and uh, called her Paranoiac, fraudulent study, fake news. So uh, Elizabeth came with a classy excuse me a classy response now this is scientists scientists on twitter those of you who aren't familiar with science twitter it's a great place to be um now elizabeth is kind of a human graphic processing unit she is absolutely astonishing uh but she does have she does have a degree in uh, microbiology a phd and um she she kind of understands an awful lot of the science here as well i wanted to just uh, mention here um someone who i occasionally interact with who is um who works alongside Elizabeth looking at these kind of things? Uh, who goes under the Twitter handle of uh, what he calls called Cheshire? Um, the the Twitter handle, <laughs> not a scientist, no scientific training. Um, that's their Twitter handle. That's regret a bull. And then there isn't room for the E, and then the L becomes a one. That's regretab one. Um, Worth a follow, worth having a look at uh, their Twitter feed. This is one of uh, their discoveries. So um, I have forgotten exactly what this demonstrates, but these are meant to demonstrate unique samples uh, of unique uh, phenomena. And uh, I don't know if you can see, but let's have a look what happens if we take this image and rotate it and stretch it a bit and bring up the original. So panel E which is meant to be some completely different experiment, is just panel D rotated and uh, stretched. So, yeah, anyone can do this. Anyone who's got the ability to uh, uh, spot similarities like this and a minimum of ability to read the paper, but you really don't have to understand what's going on. Once you realize that these things are meant to represent different experiments, if they're, if they're identical, then there's a problem. Uh, so anyone can contribute to this. Okay, how are we doing for time? I've got time to go through this. So um, I borrowed this slide from another presentation where there's interactivity. Do you recognize this man? I can't hang around long enough to get the chat to come in. This is a uh, a Dutch uh, psychologist called Diederik Stapel, who in uh, 2011 was discovered to have been making up most of his studies for the previous eight or ten years. And he uh, wrote a book after he was discovered, but before the various legal proceedings were taken against him he wrote a book of uh, a sort of autobiographical confession um in dutch and uh, i haven't speak dutch i not be quite fluent in dutch so i translated it and it's available as a free pdf download and what i didn't say but brian may have mentioned it i don't know uh, at the end of the talk i will upload all of the slides there are references at the end and you'll be able to download the powerpoint Um, And you'll find in it the the address to to get that book. So that's a it's it's a full length book. It's a it's a really interesting read. Uh, I don't know to what extent it fully describes all of the fraud that took place, uh, but it certainly uh, takes the lid off a certain amount of what goes on in science. Um, And so as well as some of the problems we've seen of um, outright fakery up till now, uh the the, uh, a group of dutch universities got together and wrote a report on what Stapel had done uh which is summarized in this slide and they talk about a a general failure of scientific criticism in the peer community and a research culture that was excessively oriented to uncritical confirmation of one's own ideas and that is a huge problem a huge problem for working scientists and if you've heard of something called the replication crisis, which um, maybe you can get someone else to come along and give you a talk on that. It's kind of the less extreme end of what I'm talking about, but there is a huge problem in, in the life sciences and in, um, and in social sciences with people being unable to, to reproduce other people's results as if the effect isn't real. And uh, the, uh, excuse me, I have a mosquito here. <laughs> Go. Um, it, this was referred to the, 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 um, the Dutch original is slaughterhavetischapsmethoden, which translates to sloppy science methods. Um, and then the adjectives, the, the sloppy really applies to the word methods, but it kind of over time became sloppy science. Um, and so what I'm going to show you is an example of what was well, a mixture of sloppy science and fraud and malpractice. Uh, and again, uh, a tool for you to help uh, detect it. So we go on to Dr. Brian Wansink um you may not have heard that i hadn't heard that name before i started looking uh, at this person's work but i'd heard of his work uh because um the you you've probably heard of things like if you go shopping when you're hungry you will buy more junk food or uh if you eat from a smaller plate you will consume fewer calories uh, I didn't know who was responsible for this, but I do much of the cooking in our house, and my wife would come with two plates, one slightly smaller than the other. And I've made two pork chops. Hers isn't getting any smaller because it's on a smaller plate. But she would. Um, she thought that what Wansink had shown was that it somehow actually changed your metabolic rate and you would absorb less of the food. E- even he only claimed that you would put less on your plate and then eat it. So here is, here is Dr. Brian Wansink, who uh, enjoys being in goofy photos. Um, he is the author of two popular books, uh, the first of which I think is more famous, Mindless Eating. Here he is with some sloppy material. 112-ounce, um, seven pounds of artificially-flavored chocolate pudding. Mm-mm. So in towards the end of 2016, Wansink, who I'd never heard of, wrote this blog post where he um, basically described how he, proudly described, how he got a grad student to take a data set that they had collected by observing all kinds of parameters of how people ate in, an, in, a, in a pizza buffet restaurant. A pizza buffet restaurant is apparently a thing in the United States. Um, and so all they had was lots and lots of data and, and no real hypothesis. So they went. he uh, instructed the grad student on how to go dredging through these data looking for patterns that could be turned into publications. Um, and um, I told her what the analysis should be and what the table should look like, but he didn't tell her what they expected to happen. So there's no actual theory. All we're doing here is we're um, making a big pot of tea and then looking at the tea leaves and saying, oh, yes, I predicted all along that there would be that line there or that line there. Um, this um, Professor Wansink was that uh, he, he appeared on Oprah. Um, he appeared on um, other you know, national TV programs in the United States. Uh, he was appointed by the Bush administration in 2007 to write the United States nutritional guidelines for the next decade. So he's you know, a fairly important person. Um, and so, you know, the, the grad student basically got four or five papers out of this data set, even though nobody had any hypothesis. So uh, I was on Twitter one morning when this blog post got discussed and with a couple of colleagues, so Tim van der Zee and Jordan Anaya, who... Uh, are uh, both still don't have their PhDs. I didn't have my PhD at the time. So three grad students. And we um, called up one of the articles or we fact had all of the articles and we kept and we started finding impossible numbers. Now, these are slightly easier numbers than uh, in the previous table that I showed you, because these aren't regression results. They're simply means and standard deviations. And we're not even going to look at the standard deviations. So if you're not totally familiar with what one of those is, don't worry. But I think most people understand the concept of a mean. So, for example, the first line here, the question, I ate more pizza than I should have. So they, they asked people, you know, how did you enjoy your time at the buffet? And you got to write the answers to questions on a scale of, let's say, one to seven. And it was, I ate more pizza than I should have. And the people who'd eaten one piece of pizza uh, said, uh, had an average score on that of 2.63. So, on a scale of one to seven, some said one, some said two, some said three. One piece of, I mean, maybe if you only intended to have a salad and you had our piece of pizza, then you could consider that too much. So, 2.63. The people who had two pieces scored 4.82. The people who had three pieces scored six, which is reasonable enough. Now, the problem is that all of the numbers that are there in yellow are not actually possible. And um, uh, I will show you how. So, um, 2.63 cannot be the mean uh, of 18 integers. The article has now been retracted. Okay, so we, um, about uh, a few months before this blog post appeared, a colleague and I had, had um, uh, come up with a, a formalized something which is basically year seven arithmetic. It's not complicated at all, which is that um, only certain means of integer values are possible when you divide that by a particular denominator which is the sample size so for example <clears throat> and this is a trivial one but you you can probably do this one in your head if you ask 7 people how many children they have and you add up the total number of children that they have they might ha- have 10 children between them or 11 or 12 and so if you say the mean well if you have 10 and you divide by 7 you'll say the mean number of children is 1.43 Uh, But the same will apply if there are 17. If they have if there are 11 children, then the mean will end in 57, .57, 2.57 and so on. If the mean is reported as being 1.52, then there's a problem because there's no way to divide an integer by seven and come out with a number that rounds to 0.52. Now, that's kind of intuitively obvious for two because you could only have it end in zero or 0.50. It's intuitively obvious for three, 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 six, 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 seven. For four, twenty-five, fifty. Above that, it starts to get a, sometimes a little bit complicated. But it turns out that for any number less than a hundred, that percentage of two-digit means are possible, and we call that grim consistent. Um, I wrote a, a web-based calculator that just lets you put in a number and the and the divisor, and it'll tell you if the if the number is consistent. So let's look at this example. Uh, We have a n of 28, and on a a, a scale with one item, one question, so how much pizza did you eat? And we'll say the mean is 5.22. So we know that we've got 28 responses. They must add up to some number that when you divide by 28 gives you 5.22. Well, if you multiply 5.22 by 28, you get 146.16. So the question is, can we explain this with rounding error? So the total must have been the nearest integer, which is 146. But when you divide 146 by 28, you get 5.21 something below 5, and that will round to 5.21. And so the reported mean of 5.22 is not correct. Now, there are many reasons this could have gone wrong. It could be a typo. Maybe one of the people didn't answer the question and you excluded them. But the number reported is not correct. There is something worth going and looking at here. So here is my colleague, uh, James Heathers, who is, uh, yeah, he's the one on the right. We took 260 articles from top journals in psychology. Uh, We checked the statistics in 71 of them where we found sample sizes below 100 and integer data. Uh, 36 of those articles had one or more inconsistent means. Um, 21 of those seemed to us to be sufficiently worth worrying about that we wrote to the authors and asked for their data. Uh, Nine sets of authors gave us their data which is pretty much par for the course because people don't share their data. We went through with a fine tooth comb looking to see what had happened. Uh, all nine had genuine uh, reporting errors of some kind. Three of them had to issue a written correction to the article. Um, what isn't on the slide is out of the 21, we eventually ended up with 14 or 15 data sets. And I think probably at least two of the articles and possibly more were Basically, fraudulent. The data had been fabricated. Um, so, uh, what does it mean if you've got a lot of these grim inconsistencies in your article? Well, supposing you've got uh, an N of 41, and I, I just made these means up completely at random, and it turns out that, so we know from the formula 41% of them could be consistent, and here are six that are not consistent and four that are, so I got lucky when I picked these numbers. Um, but You would expect 41% to be consistent by chance. So if you see those 10 numbers in an article and six of them aren't consistent, there's a good chance that all of them are wrong and the other four are only right by chance. Um, If n is 80 and 20% are inconsistent, then it can be a little bit more borderline. But a case like this, there's probably all of those numbers aren't correct in some way or another. So um, I have one more topic. It's a little bit more technical. Have we got time? Sure. Go for
2: it. Why not? We got oh, all it. right.
1: So this is more technical um, and uh, <clears throat> will require a little bit more understanding of statistics, but maybe stretch people. So James and I, mostly James in this case, uh, when we were trying to look at ways to solve the say, problem to Sprite, uh, to Grim, I'm sorry, but for standard deviations, we discovered it's it's quite compute intensive. You have to wiggle a lot of numbers around in Excel. So. James came up with uh, a technique and a name, which is absolutely horrible, uh, but called Sprite. And Sprite is a way of automating the very tedious Excel procedure of saying, I want to have a column of numbers, and I want its standard deviation to be exactly this value, which if you've got 12 numbers isn't too hard, but with 200 really gets very, very dull very, very quickly. So what Sprite does is, it enables you to enter um, a mean and a standard deviation of a, of a set of numbers, the minimum and maximum and how many there are, and it will generate data with those uh, parameters and it'll let you look at them in a ta- in a, a bar chart and a histogram i 'm sorry, I have to say histogram, not bar chart and um, the uh, you can then have a look at that and see if that looks like a reasonable distribution for your um, for your problem. So let's say that you're reading an article and it says there were 135 people and they answered a question on a one to nine scale, and uh, that was the mean and that was the standard deviation 1.7. Then Sprite shows you that. say here are some of the possible ways, some of the possible distributions that match that. So you can see there's a tendency to have more values uh, in the middle and fewer at the ends. Now, uh or you might see reported the same numbers, but with a standard deviation of 3.4. And um, what Sprite shows you then is there's going to be a lot more extreme responding. Now, whether or not either of those is plausible will depend on the question you're asking. And if you say to people, for example, what do you think of, 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 of Brexit, you're probably going to get a distribution more like this one, uh, than this one, which might be, you know, what do you think of Anton and Dec Saturday night takeaway or whatever? So, um, There's no right or wrong answer. But if you're reading an article that says we ask people what they think about Donald Trump and you're told the standard deviation was one point seven and you had a a distribution like that, you think, wow, you know, do I really believe that most people don't rate Donald Trump either a one or a nine? So um, but, yeah, it's it's a it's a heuristically driven process. This is really this is this is nerdy stuff. There is a complete solution. I'll show you an example of, of Sprite. So this is a French uh, evolutionary social psychologist called Nicolas Guigné, who uh, wanted to demonstrate, or well, wanted to find out. Haha, we don't we don't we don't demonstrate. We we see if our hypotheses are true. Uh, that um, you could strengthen people's belief in global warming by exposing them to dead vegetation. So he got a bunch of undergraduates into a room and asked them questions about global warming, and the room contained a desk, and on the desk there was either a dead or alive. Uh, fecus plant and in the presence of the and so here's a typical question it seems to me the temperature is warmer now than in previous years so when there was a live plant on the desk they responded with a mean of five on this question about their uh, confidence in global the reality of global warming and uh, sprite shows us that with that mean and standard deviation this was a likely pattern of responses Um, then in the presence of the dead plant Uh, uh, The mean score was 5.6, which is quite a big, given that the uh, standard deviation was so small, that's a significant increase. That gives you a publishable number to say there is an effect. And what that shows is that the distribution looks like this. The problem is, uh, at least from a just purely pragmatic point of view, I don't believe that if you got a bunch of French undergraduates in a room and say, do you believe in global warming, that most of them are going to reply five or indeed six. I think you're. Go- I certainly don't believe that none of them would reply with a seven. You're going to get some sevens. You're going to get a lot of sevens. You might even have contrarians saying one or two, but you're not going to get everybody with this sort of mm, five. And then in the presence of the dead plant, I well, maybe six. That just isn't going to happen. That isn't that isn't realistic data. So we we don't believe that these data have been uh, accurately reported. Let's say. So in summary. Um, yeah, the fact that something has been peer-reviewed is in no way a guarantee of quality or correctness. It is an absolutely minimum barrier to overcome. Um, there is a myth within science that science uh, self-corrects. It really doesn't. Uh, Elizabeth Bick sent 800 journals, a lot saying you've published fraudulent articles and only 30% got retracted five years later. Um, people can become famous and in some cases pretty rich on the back of, frankly, terrible research. And again, we're not talking about quacks here. We're talking about people who are getting uh, federal research money and national research money to do their research, who are getting uh, gigs consulting for major corporations. Uh, and the good news, the, the one bit of good news here is pretty well anyone can make a contribution to this. If you can read means, if you can spot duplicate images, uh, you can be part of the, of the fight back against this. So uh, I will upload the slides. There are three pages of references. And there's a little bonus here, which I will leave up. And do we have a – will it stay up, Brian, or or, or will you take a screenshot and distribute it? How will this work?
2: I believe that our tech support gibbons can uh, make sure that the slide stays up, at least for some of the time anyway. All right. So uh, for those of you
1: who are following while I was explaining Grimm, um, here is a a very important paper from – psychology and I, I invite you not to go and google the text and see if you can find out which one it is but it's it's, a, it's an important uh paper of relevance to skeptics and it contains uh data that are measured in uh, integers among multiple samples mul- uh, multiple uh, people in a sample and it contains grim inconsistencies and your task should you choose to accept it before we come back for the q a Is to uh, identify, and I guess if you put it in the in the chat, then everyone will kind of everyone will say, "Oh, yes, I saw that." So maybe keep it to yourself or write it on a bit of paper. Um, And uh, there are some errors in this table. Uh, I won't tell you how many, Um, and and your mission is to find them. Okay, I'm forty five. Whoa. Okay, that was. I didn't think, I thought I would go take longer than that. Maybe I went too quick. I hope I didn't go too quick for everybody. Uh, I hope some of the things that, if you didn't understand some of the more complicated bits, that some of the less complicated bits were uh, entertaining. So, uh, Brian, tell us what happens next. <laughs>
2: Okay, everybody, welcome back. Um, Hopefully you uh, watered yourself uh, appropriately over the break. So um, we've been keeping an eye on the questions as they've been coming into Slido. There's some great stuff in there. Um, Still got your chance to upvote if you go go in there. Um, But before we launch into the Q&A part, uh, we're going to hand back over to Dr. Nick to give us the uh, the answer to his um, pre-break teaser, the Grim Exercise. Over to you, Nick. Thanks, Brian. I, I'm not sure if
1: the slide stayed up the whole time because at one point I actually hit the arrow keys for a couple of seconds and the answer came up. So uh, there are three Grim errors in the table. Um, it's really to really be easy to do in your head because the the, the sample size is 20, and therefore the The correct numbers can only end in 5 or 0. So the errors are here, 3.08 can't be uh, an integer divided by 20, Uh, uh, minus 0.62, same reason, 5.18. Now, sometimes I mentioned that sometimes this could be due to one person missing or two people missing. Uh, But in order for these numbers to be possible, there would have to be a a sample size of uh, only 13. So seven people would have had to not answer an item. And at that point, you really ought to be reporting that. Uh, in the article now, um, Cleo, who's been uh, i don't know what your role is or sort of from skeptics in the pub who's been on the uh, chatting with me while we've been uh, off the air uh, spotted the uh, uh, the uh, article which she recognized from previous psychology training um, this article is by festinger and Carl Smith, nineteen fifty nine and it is the original it's really the canonical empirical demonstration of their phenomenon of cognitive dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance is an important uh, psychological uh, phenomenon for skeptics. Uh, If you read almost any sort of book of the, you know, Michael Shermer variety, why people believe weird things, um, cognitive dissonance will be discussed as an explanation of why people find it difficult to reconcile uh, evidence with beliefs and, and how they go about trying to trying to do that. Uh, it turns so Festinger and Carl Smith, who were the originators of this concept of uh, of cognitive dissonance, because like all concepts in psychology, it, it's, it's socially constructed and it may or may not correspond to the reality of what's going on in the, in the lump of jelly in your head um, uh, are no longer around to explain these errors. But the rest of that article is a complete dumpster fire. It is a terrible, terrible, terrible article. Um, and the 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 URL that's on this slide, uh, and again, I will be uploading the slides later, and uh, I will tweet the URL out, and maybe the skeptics in the pub organizations will retweet it. But if not, you could follow me, and then you'd get it live. Um, this URL explains a bit more about that and some of the things that are wrong with that Festinger and Carl Smith article. And so um, – I'd certainly heard of cognitive dissonance before I read my first scientific paper, and I sort of thought, oh, yes, that's a thing, and it seems to make a lot of sense. And then you discover these kind of problems, and you realize that a great deal of psychology uh, makes makes sense because otherwise it would be absurd, but isn't necessarily particularly in – how do you say – I don't know how to say this. It sounds good. It doesn't sound in conflict with anything. And after a while, you wonder if it isn't just a little bit of a just-so story. So, yeah, that's the little epilogue, is uh, watch, out for, um, watch out for errors like that in all kinds of reporting. You'll, you'll, you will see them. Uh, the other thing I just remember is I don't have a link up for Sprite, but if anyone wants to use Sprite, uh, tweet me, and I will put up the URL to, to run that as
2: well. So, uh, thanks very much, Nick. And there's some very, very limited celebration going on in the text chat there for people that got, those, uh, got the questions right. Okay, so let's move on to the Q and a portion. We are going to start off with the winning question from Rob McDermott. The question is could an automated process be set up to check images for signs of manipulation and flag it up to reviewers in practice, I doubt it uh, the, the
1: the The general field is so wide i 've just shown you articles things where the same image has been recycled within the same figure. Uh, It's quite common to recycle them within other figures in the paper. It's then also quite common to recycle them within other articles from the same lab. If you're looking at things like Western blots and gel lanes, um, you could borrow an image from any one of several thousand papers. So it quickly becomes, even if you had the algorithm, it becomes computationally uh, enormously complicated. If you tried to do it with some form of machine learning, I suspect you would run out of money and terabytes uh, before you would have anything that performed remotely as well as a human being. So I I don't think so. But um, every time Elizabeth Bick tweets a new a new particular disaster, uh, one or two people pop into her timeline and said, "Hey, you ought to automate that." We we kind of yeah we, we score a little a little sort of um, uh, tech bro tech bro bingo point because someone always says that and they don't they never say. I've written one. They go, you should be able to write that. It's like, OK, you go off
2: and do it and we'll test it for you. All right. One mil to the humans then. in your face, AI. Uh, OK, next up, Dave, the drummer, says how big a problem is bad stats, uh, given that it can lead to poor conclusions, influencing government policy and medical decisions. And what can be done about it? Bad statistics
1: is a problem, but it's kind of absorbed up in just the whole general problem of bad research and you know, it isn't just that people are accidentally dragging the wrong predictor variable into into uh, their their software um it, there isn't really that kind of bright line between stats and, and the rest of the analysis and the rest of all of the analytical decisions that go into it um but for example well uh, over the last you know few years the sort of standard joke has been okay so You know, psychologists are finding out lots of things that aren't true by just reading the tea leaves. But at least nobody died. And then we had the nudge unit telling us that we should go for herd immunity or something. Um, And uh, I, I read the book. I reread the book Nudge, which I'd read in 2009 in passing. And I reread it the other day and I opened it at random and at page 46 or something. It starts off with two and a half pages of Brian Wansink's work. Uh, And it's based almost entirely on social psychology research on undergraduates done during probably the worst period for the reliability of social psychology research. So uh, bad statistics, there are some problems, but generally in psychology, it's difficult to separate the bad statistics from the other issues. In biomedical sciences, it's normally relatively obvious what analysis you want to do. So there isn't that much of a problem. But in psychology, there's certainly a problem with people making up their own methods or, or, or using inappropriate models. Um, and the solution would be if you know, every psychological study was run past a statistician. But We don't have that many statisticians, um, not least because statisticians and competent statisticians who can program, who can write code in R and Python, um, don't hang around in academia very well. They can, they can make a hell of a lot more money working
2: in industry. Okay. Yeah, Donald Trump certainly um, used some inappropriate models in his time. Um, okay, next question, Neil. Is there a, a little bit of a follow-on from the first question? Actually, is there a role for machine learning and other automated techniques for identifying problematic papers? So maybe less so in the in the realm of sort of image checking, but more in the in the realm of data. Checking? Uh, we
1: also get people saying, "Hey, you could get AI to do grim," and it's like, right, okay. So the pick up a psychology paper. From something like Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and read it and try and work out where the sample comes from, what the final sample actually was, what the range of the variables was, and where the mean and the standard deviation are. They're all written that there is no metadata. So it'll start off you with know, a method. 174 undergraduates were divided into three groups. Okay, they don't tell you if the groups were equal. There are 58 in each, or whether there was slightly unequal. If you're randomizing, it probably should be unequal. Um, And then about three paragraphs later, it'll say two participants were excluded for not paying attention. And then it'll say in the first group, the mean was this much. And you've got to try and work out whether that mean is possible, given that you don't know the actual sample size (laughs) and uh, there are two people less. Now, you can work it out sometimes because you can take the three means put them together and say what combination of those numbers would add up to 174 or 172. And we've done that on many occasions, but before you can do that, you've got to have an AI that is capable of reading the article and understanding what it means to participate and to be a participant. And it is unbelievably complex to do that. We don't have code that we don't have code that can do that at the moment. It would be absolutely at the cutting edge of AI to be able to do that. Um, And, you know, are we going to get that 15 order of magnitude increase in processing speed and people interested in doing it? Probably not. You know, this this kind of work is being done by a bunch of slightly warped amateurs like myself. And I won't use warped to describe the others. But, you know, people who um, don't have much to lose, who enjoy poking holes in things. It's not being done by working scientists. Uh, because they've got jobs and mortgages and things like that.
2: OK, so effectively 2-0 to the humans then. <laughs> <laughs> AI, brilliant. OK, uh, let's move on. Uh, the next one is from Matt from Bristol Skeptics. Recently, some coronavirus articles have been retracted within 24 hours after flaws were noticed. Why so fast there, whereas others so slow or
1: not retracted at all? Um, I don't know the specific cases, and I don't even know if they were retracted as in they got to the they got to the point of peer review and a journal um, or uh, that they were just preprints that were put up and got deleted. Um, But uh, I mean, obviously, everyone's under a lot of scrutiny and obviously everyone cares. One of the problems is a great deal of the research that is done in every field. Nobody cares about. Now, the problem with that, that is not to say that this research is useless. It's simply that nobody else cares currently. So there's a million researchers churning out their, uh, their um, results, and in most cases, there aren't 58 people or 58,000 people waiting to know what the result of that one study was. Uh, so you, the paradox of science is you're doing all this stuff that nobody cares about, and some, because in order to make a discovery, you have to go where? By definition, where nobody else had gone before. Once they get your result, they might become interested in it. But until you publish that result, nobody is interested in your research. And after you publish it, almost nobody is interested in your research. So the whole research process is about generating stuff that you find interesting that nobody else does in the hope that they will. With COVID-19, it's pretty obvious that if you publish anything whatsoever, it will get coverage, which is why there's also so much drek being published either in terms of uh, it's not very well done or in terms of we don't care um, because, you know, Oh, uh, you know, every university is going. University of Banshire researchers put out an important paper showing that, uh, you know, people who um, panic by toilet paper are also more likely to panic by baked beans. Um, so uh, obviously everything is going much, much faster at the moment. And it's kind of nice that the retractions come quickly. But there is so much crap being published. Um, and and some of it gets as far as the desk of the president of the United
2: States. Unfortunately. Uh, okay, next one. Uh, anonymous question. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. Indeed, very interesting talk. But could it fuel climate change deniers as it tends to undermine confidence in scientific research publications? So, Nick, is Greta Thunberg going to put a hit out on you? Um,
1: it's it absolutely could undermine. I uh, I don't know about what the sort of state of climate research is relative to some of the things that I've talked about um uh and I think it's a problem for science that science is going to have to decide if it's going to if it's able to tolerate the amount of crap that's being churned out while still being the kind of thing that society looks up to and you know I find myself on twitter you know someone saying you know I oh, was that one about gargle with a hot drink because that'll kill the virus because it can't survive hot temperatures like, you know, can't survive above 26 Celsius. Well, it seems to do pretty damn fine in your lungs at 38, right? But, um, and so I find myself sort of saying, look, please listen to the scientists. And they go, not those scientists. <laughs> yeah. um, so science absolutely has to clean itself up, uh, but I don't really see how it can. And I don't know if the, if the COVID-19 thing really goes badly wrong, and people start going, well, you know, why are we paying these scientists anyway? Um, they will not be short of things to bash people with. If um, if Nigel Farage came to me and said, I want you to be the Brexit, whatever their name is this week, party's spokesman on why scientists are all a bunch of Guardian reading hippie liberal idiots who don't know anything about anything. Uh, I would have an arsenal worth of material if I wanted to. It would be biased. It would be an unfair representation. But there is absolutely no shortage of utterly crap science. And science ought to put its house in order, but science doesn't exist. Margaret Thatcher got yeah. When Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, my goodness, she really, there really is no such thing as science. (laughs) In her definition of there's only the individual men and women who make it up, there is no such thing as science, Inc. It's not the Catholic Church. It's more like Sunni Islam.
2: Okay, controversial. Uh, okay, let's move on. Um, Matt from Bristol Skeptics again. Oh, it, really uh, awesome. it, it, it is. Uh, he, yeah, and I mean, he's got probably
1: anonymous as well. So, so,
2: so we're going to we're going to find out whether it's three nil to humans or two one. So, mm-hmm. uh, it seems one could write some simple software to santi check the statistical tables to screen the paper before peer review. Off so, you go, Matt. <laughs> Off
1: you go can can get, can we get get the spec of the reporting format see if anybody adheres to it have a nice day oh okay all right. let's, uh, uh, let's would it be nice would it be nice if all if all articles came with metadata yes it would are the journals going to impose that no they're not thanks matt, <laughs> Sorry, matt. I'm, I'm, no. there is the, you know i'm a computer guy i've looked at this i've thought about it i've it's not and I'm not even an AI guy, you know I'm an old computer guy who thinks that one hundred and twenty eight k of memory is a lot of, is a lot of memory um, and uh no <laughs> you could
2: knock something up on your uh, z x spectrum then no okay uh well, I'm going to call that 3-0 to humans. right. uh next question is from Simon. Simon asks, how are reviewers chosen uh kind of depends on the on the journal
1: at, at a mega journal, the editor in chief might not see your submission but basically uh, i i write my article i upload it fill in rather forms, a bit more complicated than applying for a passport um and it lands on the edit let's say the editor-in-chief's desk at a, at a small to medium-sized journal and he will read the cover letter and maybe look at the abstract and decide whether you know has he heard has he heard of you has he heard of your university does it look completely idiotic and I'm being a little bit unfair to peer, the peer review process. We don't see the real, the, the dreck that gets sent there, you know, the, the sort of relativity deniers writing to the physics journals, et cetera. Um, uh, so uh, the editor-in-chief will assign uh, an action editor who is the person who will handle the whole process, who is someone who has the editor-in-chief's confidence, who's a member of something called the editorial board. And the action editor will uh, either contact people who they know uh, who are and who they think have knowledge relevant to the kind of field related to the article, whatever the manuscript subject is. Uh, but at some of the, some journals, including some of the mega journals like we saw Nature Scientific Reports, uh, at a, one point in the submission process, I think this is the cover letter, and it says um, you, you may include in the cover letter the names of and you know contact details of people who you think would be good reviewers. Uh, now. I sort of understand the pragmatics of this but it strikes me as uh, somewhat open to abuse but the whole model of doing science is really is based on it being done by gentlemen seek um who are of you know impeccable independent means and have no you know ulterior motives whatsoever other than to do the purest science and um a- any sort of questioning of that practically brings on an attack of the vapors um and so uh, the, the, the processes aren't all that robust, as we've seen, because they don't take into account the, the idea that somebody might be trying it on. Um, you know, when you, when you call your bank, there's, there's a few minimum security checks because the bank are familiar with the idea that, yes, I know, I know it's you, Mr. Ego, but would you mind confirming your date of birth? You know, and you, you don't mind doing that. You don't go, look. Did you know who I am, you know? just like of course you know. Or when you go to the airport and it goes beep, you don't sort of go, well, I have probably got a spoon in my pocket. I refuse to turn out my pocket. Are you calling me a liar, sir? Um, and and um where were we? How are reviewers assigned? Anyway, yes. So, uh the the uh the it's a, it's typically the action editor will select a couple of people he knows. Very often the reviewers will be selected from a pool of people who have published in that journal. There's a journal I've written 10 or 12 reviews for. They've published two of my articles. Now they use me as a reviewer for particular kinds of articles. So it's, but it's all unpaid. Uh, the action editor is unpaid. The reviewers are unpaid. The editor in chief gets a small stipend, but it's you know ten or twelve thousand dollars a year typically to run the journal as as a sort of sideline from their academic job. Um, so it's a, it's a very profitable business for the publishers.
2: No doubts. I, I do keep an emergency spoon with me wherever I go. By the way, okay, um, let's move on. Oh, stalking a conspiracy theory that Matt from Bristol Skeptics has got a bundle of ghost accounts to upvote himself. He's up next on the popularity list. So, please elaborate, Doctor Nick, on your comment that positive psychology is bad science.
1: Uh, there is a lot of bad science in positive psychology. I would, I will, I will leave it at that. Um, it, it, there are endless critiques of positive psychology and at this point i will actually break my conflict of interest disclosure and reveal that i am one of the editors of a very large academic book called the routledge international handbook of critical positive psychology so yeah uh and i, I recommend you look at that uh, i don't recommend you buy your own copy because it's some horrific price uh, on amazon but those of you who are familiar with ways to obtain academic texts uh, by let's say alternative channels um, may be able to get hold of a copy and we take a, a my two co-editors on that are both people who teach positive psychology and we take a, a sort of critical and skeptical look at positive psychology
2: okay good stuff all right uh let's move on um right let's see uh oh it's just scrolled for the right and it's refreshed Hopefully you guys can still hear me. All right, cool. Um, so uh, you mentioned fake reviewers. Fake review yeah. counts for the African Gamer Study. How does that even work? Are pro- procedures for qualification check that week? Um, I don't know because I've never really been involved in assigning editors on that
1: basis, but I have read. There's a, there's an excellent site called retractionwatch.com, and they regularly report on, among other things, fake peer review Um uh situations where uh the journal allows you to suggest reviewers people suggest reviewers with gmail addresses um now the the the, one of the difficulties is academic uh email addresses only last as long as your affiliation with that university and so uh on pretty well all of the articles i've ever published i've used a public non-academic Uh, email address as the corresponding author address. So it's not unreasonable for an academic to be using a Gmail address. I have a, I have an address at Linnaeus university, but it's a pain to use because you've got to use Outlook web access. You've got to remember to log in. So I manage it by forwarding everything to Gmail. So uh, it's in itself, it's not necessarily suspicious that someone you're looking to invite to, to review would have a Gmail address. They probably ought to have a faculty address behind it. Um, So uh, it doesn't happen all that often. I'm not sure it happened in the in the Nature Scientific Reports case, but it it does explain. I've seen the peer review reports and they were very badly written. They were very uh, summary, very light, uh, didn't point out any major issues, were not written, uh, were written by someone whose native language wasn't English uh, in a style not dissimilar to the first author's who's also native languages and English, et cetera. So that's one of the possibilities. But certainly whatever happened, those reviewers were certainly not
2: very competent. Okay, nice one. Let's move on. Next question from Graham. Do you think that errors are more due to incompetence with software, Excel, SPSS, et cetera, and or lack of statistical knowledge and or data handling rather than fraud? Uh Errors manipulating the
1: software, not so much, although one of the grim, one of the articles, the nine articles that we got the data set for Grimm, uh, the data set came in the form of an Excel sheet, and there'd been a horrific accident. And so there were two people were in two conditions, but in, in most of the columns, the, 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 numbers, the totals and means and standard deviations for condition two included all of the cases from condition one as well, plus their mean and standard deviation were kind of counted as extra people. That was a horrific uh, mix up. So there are lots of just plain, simple uh, programming errors. Um, There are errors that occur. There are coding errors. Coding errors are wonderful because um, I've seen a couple of things recently. One was an article that demonstrated that conservatives are whatever it was in the American sense, that conservatives were Worse on some measure than liberals, and and then someone discovered that they'd actually coded the conservatives as one and the liberals as zero instead of the other way around, and so the result was exactly inverted.
0: Uh,
1: And uh, and then I saw another one recently, same thing, only it was men and women. Uh, So just elementary stuff like that. And one of the things is on a typical article with three or four authors the, oh, there'll only be one copy of the analysis. Only one person will do the analysis, and everyone will go, right, you've done the analysis, that's right. You won't, the, you know, the authors ought to go off and completely blinded do two or three copies of the analysis. Um, but one of the dirty little secrets of quite a lot of science, including quite a lot of psychology, is that not many people, or a lot of people, are not very confident with statistics. Uh, you get trained in it, but people don't go into psychology to do statistics and to do computer programming and to do software you know analyses and so it tends to get left to one member of the team and if they have a question they'll probably toddle off down the corridor to ask you know that one person who's pretty good at stats uh now my my son had a I spent some time at CERN and CERN's a bit different CERN they write all the they write all the software to do all the analyses with fake data and they get it tested by multiple teams and once they've done that, they then get, they get the data, they drop it in, and they run it once, and that's it, and that's your result. They don't get to say, oh, yeah, we forgot to uh, – <laughs> you tested all the software. Um, that doesn't happen when you've got a bunch of people doing their own analyses in the lab. You have unlimited do-overs. It's like, oh, oh, look, oh, I think I didn't include that variable. Does anyone know how you include that variable correctly in R? They said, yeah, I think you put a twiddle in front of R. Well, I put a twiddle in front of it, and I got a number, and it looks good. And and when you actually go back and read the code and you know what's going on, you're going, see, why did you include that twiddle? Um, But even, but even then that requires the person who's doing the looking to have a lot of confidence. This stuff is hard and and people discussing statistics. uh, It's something that I absolutely had not appreciated. Many people think of statistics as a branch of mathematics, but really it isn't. It's a sort of engineering done with mathematics, but, uh, People are still fighting today, 2020, over the meaning of some very, very basic statistical concepts. It's not like calculus where really, you know, there isn't much to argue about. People are arguing about the meaning of really quite basic things in statistics on a daily basis, even though we're using them to do our drug tests and and everything else. And that is kind of fascinating,
2: but it's, it's actually slightly worrying when you look behind the curtain. Indeed it is. Now, Nick, we've actually gone past the half past eight mark. Um, If it's okay with you, there's still plenty of questions there. Can we continue on for a few more? Two more fingers. Uh, (laughs) Two more fingers. Mm. Well, it depends where you're going to put them. But um, salute to the audience for hanging with us. Okay, so the the next question, um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. So it's from Anonymous, but it says, hi, Nick, Cheshire here. Um, I don't know whether that's the cat or the county. He's or whatever. the
1: person who was featured in my talk as the as the uh, image detective that you should follow.
2: Ah, way to go! All right, welcome aboard, Cheshire. Uh, if you don't mention it before now, mention Pub Peer. Yes, so
1: there is an excellent website called Pub Peer, as in uh, Publication Peer Review dot com, and um, where well, it's called the Online Journal Club. Now, a journal club is traditionally where a bunch of students get together and read. A, it's kind of like a book club, but for scientific articles. Um, PubPeer is where people get together on the Internet to discuss the merits or other of published papers. And um, all you need is an author name or the title of the paper or the the DOI, the digital object identifier that uniquely identifies the paper. And you can uh, go into PubPeer and uh, enjoy reading what people may have written about it. Um, you can also get a browser plugin so that whenever that article is mentioned on a web page that you're looking at, it'll go, bing, there are comments about this on PubPeer. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of comments on PubPeer
2: are not praised. Sounds like a I, um, I was hoping that some diligent uh, audience member was going to dig that URL out and stick it into the the, the the chat and Twitch. Come on, folks, don't let me down. Put it in there if you can. Pub, PubPeer.com. P U B. P-A-A-R. Excellent. OK, not easy to say, but uh, easy to find. Right. Next is from Gail. How much should we pay or faith should we put in to pre-publication papers, especially the the large number recently about COVID-19?
1: This is uh, a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. So these are called, typically called preprints, and the, they came from physics, where the idea was that because the peer review process took a long time, at a journal, you—if you had an interesting discovery—you would basically write the article, and it's a draft of the article that you put online, and anyone can read it and review it and criticize and comment on it. Uh, I don't know if physics maybe has fewer papers or has more people interested in any given piece of work. Uh, this has been adopted enthusiastically uh, by proponents of kind of open and and, and clear science on the idea that they post a preprint and then lots of people will pile in and comment on it. But that doesn't happen uh, because the literature is so vast. There's so much stuff to do. Nobody has time to actually read this. And then all of a sudden uh, with the COVID-19 people. So what happened was the news media are going, well, what's the science say? Well, even if the journals are quick, they're not that quick. And the news media all want to scope themselves. And so uh, people will put up a preprint, call their friends in the news media because Many working scientists have contacts, you know. In I have contacts in, you know, fairly substantial web publications, um, and and say, you yeah, know, this is interesting. And then uh, they may or may not, and they say on the evening news. But of course, it hasn't been peer reviewed. But that gets washed away. That gets absolutely washed away. In scientists at prestigious university have discovered that X cures coronavirus. Um, and so, you know, there isn't even that kind of layer of peer review. And I think it's a. Re- I think it potentially a real problem uh because we can't rely on the media to gatekeep it for us in terms of it hasn't been peer reviewed everybody is scrambling for position as the guy who predicted this or the person who predicted that about covid-19 um and i think the that danger has been lurking there and uh covid-19 just puts ev- all of the deficiencies of science on kind of you know turbo turbo boost um So, yeah, it's it's a problem. And uh, I'm not sure what the solution is, because it means we have to ask the media to pay less attention to scientists or, again, you know, not those scientists. And yet they'll try and get some balance. But everybody, you know, everybody wants to hear this will cure COVID-19. People who come on and go, well, you know what? That isn't actually very good evidence. will not get much of a hearing. And, And also because of the. Just the general imbalance in science and and the skeptics, I think, will appreciate this, that um, people, reckless people can make almost any claim they want where you work with the evidence about the best you can come up with is, well, there's no evidence for that or there's no good evidence for that. And the problem is that to a lot of people, there's no evidence for that sounds pretty much indistinguishable from you can't prove that copper. (laughs) And When people say you can't prove that copper, we
2: kind of know they're guilty. Okay, Uh, let's move on. Uh, Next question, uh, another one from Neil. Would Benford's law help to identify made up data um, observing the frequency distribution of leading digits compared to real life sets of numerical data? Um, Benford's law, which is actually called
1: the something Benford law, is actually quite useful or has been useful to me in several contexts. And if you look up Brown and Heather's, me and James Heather's and the word rivets. Uh, You will find uh, a preprint that we wrote on another tool that we have to do this. But interestingly, uh, it's more likely with the kind of data gathered in psychological experiments and scientific experiments more generally, uh, Benford's law is famous because it predicts the distribution of the leading, the first digit in uh, in certain categories of data. Uh, A much more interesting effect of Benford's law is that it predicts, and this is actually uh, kind of intuitive, but it predicts. That there will be an even, a uh, uniform distribution of the third and subsequent digit, and that still falls under Benford's law, but it isn't kind of the the kind of party piece where you demonstrate that that there's a lot of ones and then fewer twos and fewer threes and it follows an exponential uh, decay curve. But uh, the 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 extended contents of 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 the Benford law, showing that that does not apply in the third digit position, is something that uh, that I've applied myself and other people have applied to uh to that kind of data and and you know results of regression coefficients that have just been made up by typing in the numbers because people are not very good at simulating randomness uh the actual leading digit thing is surprisingly surprisingly often you can't use it because typically the results of a scientific experiment would not be expected to obey the leading digit component of benford's law it's a great question
2: great question indeed Okay. uh, next question is from the enigmatically named Gray, um, as in Fifty Shades Of. Can you name some well-known journals that don't require publishing raw data? So I know which journals to consider worthless. Smiley face. Um, Most of them. (laughs) Uh, Various,
1: various journals have various levels of mandatory data sharing policy. Uh, Almost none require you that you upload your full data set and analysis code Uh, when you submit the article in any field. Um, Most of them have some statement to the effect of, you know, you must send your data if someone requests it. However, when someone then does request it and then you refuse to send it, they can't just write to the the editor and say, hey, this guy said he'd share his data and he hasn't. I demand that you retract the paper. They'll go, well, let's not be too hasty. Um, And in practice, nothing happens because we're all jolly nice chaps and we're not we don't want to cause a fuss and he's got more lawyers than we have and you do get you do get interesting situations with with scientists threatening to sue each other uh, or threatening to sue journals if they retract an article um and i don't know how enforceable these threats are um especially with the i mean the big problem of having any form of kind of inf- of, of uh, legal enforcement of anything in science is because it's so international so It yeah, that does that does happen. But in practice no almost no data, uh, almost no art no uh journal requires data in a really meaningful way.
2: Disappointing. Uh okay. Next question from how many fingers have you got left?
1: Uh, I've got a whole handful of fingers trying to catch this mosquito. No, I haven't been no we're still going. OK,
2: right. Don't catch me later. Next question. David, would changing the funding model of journals so that peer reviewers are paid help? I thought about this. I'm not
1: sure. Uh, I've actually reviewed a couple of times uh, book proposals. So if you get you get a uh, Routledge or Oxford will write to you and they'll say we've had a proposal to write a, a book on a particular subject. And what do you think of it? And does it look like a credible thing? And would people buy it? And when you review for a book publisher, they they sometimes give they might give you a choice of 40 quid in cash or 70 quid in books. Um, It's difficult. I wouldn't want to be paid any kind of substantial amount of money for reviewing. But um, I I do like the idea that somebody's got some skin in the game. So it might do. I mean, it isn't going to happen anyway. So we might as well be discussing, you know, would it be a good idea if, you know, britain rejoined the european union or something i mean um it's it's not going to happen i used to think it wouldn't even be a good idea and that we ought to all be doing it for the love of it i'm not so sure now um but if you did if it was any substantial amount of money the problem is you would then have large numbers of people kind of gathering in peer review as a a form of income and i think one of the problems that scientists tend to be very naive when the open access journal model was invented so Traditionally, the journals were free to publish in and your university had to buy a subscription to that journal. And then somebody came up with and said, oh, this is terrible because people in poor countries can't afford to to the journal and they don't get to read our science. So we should have a model where the, the lab pays to publish and then the article is free to read on the Internet. And everyone said that was great. What happens is people in poor countries find that much, much more of a barrier. Because it's much harder to get around the barrier of paying to publish than it is to get hold of a copy of the PDF. Uh, meanwhile, what happened was an entire industry started of fake journals. So there is if any academic, if there are any academics watching, if you've had your name or your email address published as the corresponding author of an article, you will receive. And I get mm, four or five a day emails saying, esteemed Dr. Brown, greetings for the day, three exclamation marks. We are hoping you will send your lovely research to our journal for a fast, rapid publication service, awaiting your most expedient, speedy response. Uh, and then it's quite, it's quite often sound like Britney Spears or someone, editorial manager. And these are fake journals. You send them your paper. They... Print it in a thing called a web page that says the International Journal of Psychological Social Personality or some other. (laughs) Um, uh, They give you a DOI and you pay them four hundred dollars and you haven't got to go through any of that pesky peer review. Now, it's well known that some of these journals are totally fake, but it's a continuum. So there are there are genuine academic publishers who will do sort of proper peer review, but they never actually reject any. So the, the the whole thing has been undermined by this sort of corrupting forces of peer review. And the only thing kind of standing between that uh, and, and complete anarchy is the fact that when you put that on your CV, you know that somebody might sort of, oh, I see he's got 48 publications. Let's pick one at random. Oh, it appears to be a completely fake journal based in, you know, some some part of the world that's not particularly well known for, quality science, but is well known for uh, cheap office space and server time.
2: Okay. Um, in the interest of time, I think we're going to make this one the last question, um, which makes it all the more difficult for me to try and read as well. So it's from Jeff from Triangle Skeptics and Rally in the US of A. Thanks for oh. joining, Jeff. Yeah. So a question is, do you see generative adversarial networks, GANs, which is pairs of AIs working against each other? No. <laughs> as a threat to
1: the idea no, of smell no. tests for spotting bad well, science. Sorry, as a threat to. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I'm being flippant there. I've, I've finished my GNT. I, please <laughs> ask the question again, Jeff. And I apologise for the, but it was about the fifth. It was about the fifth machine learning question today. Please Jeff, ask the question again.
2: Do you see them as a threat to the idea of smell tests for spotting bad science? That smell tests and scare quotes. I don't.
1: I don't understand what they're meant to do. That would be a threat to.
2: Nor do I. Nor do I. Well, I'll tell you what. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, maybe we'll get yeah, yeah, If the question is, are we going to be seeing any
1: time soon uh, artificially intelligent programs that are generating fake science that, that humans can't spot? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, because they... I mean, just from the fundamental point of view, the AI is trained on training sets and science is kind of by definition innovative, although you see a great deal of non-innovative science. But if science isn't innovative, then it isn't really worth, worth it anyway. So I, I'm not fully sure I understand the question, but uh, I suppose it's make a change from will the AI be able to detect the fake science. Um, I mean, the other thing just generally with the AI is... We don't have enough known fake science to train these things on. Uh, We have lots of science that we're skeptical about. We have lots of science that is bad, uh, but I don't think we'd like the results if we handed the last 25 years of certain fields uh, to, uh, I mean, if we handed that to an AI, how would we even say this is good and this is bad?
2: Got you. Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's throw in one more question and uh, just, uh, just for added value um, from Anonymous. What changes would you introduce to reduce the publication of poor papers? Also, um, consider Internet publishing sites that don't enforce review. Um,
1: it, it It's not. I don't believe the question to be well formed. As I said, science is Sunni Islam. It's not. It's not the Catholic Church. Um you're asking people who have incentives to do things that go against those incentives. That is fairly unlikely uh, to happen. I, I don't see that there is any uh, top-down change that you can do. I think there's only what people as individuals can choose to do. And at the moment, unfortunately choosing to do most of the choices that make for better science uh, do not make for a good career progress. And uh, I don't get you know, it if there was a solution we'd already be doing it but there, there's two problems one is there isn't a solution and the other is there's no context within to even enforce a solution it doesn't even really mean anything so it does come back i say that uh, i didn't think 30 years ago i'd be recommending margaret thatcher on this but margaret thatcher's statement in you know, it. Which she said basically people he she said quote people say should society should do something i think that's the contentious part and she said but there is no such thing as society there's only the individual men and women who make it up and i think that actually has some validity to it Uh, there is no such thing as science there's only the individual actions of science scientists every day around the world and every day around the world 98 percent of scientists follow the herd, and the other 2% complain about it and basically end up having to follow the herd because otherwise they're no longer there. And then we're just into a big question of survivorship bias. And a lot of extremely talented people leave science every year because they can't take the bullshit. And the danger is that you end up with, with a, a, a graduate, postgraduate, postdoc population made up of the people who decided to hack the bullshit, were able to hack the bullshit, and are prepared to hang around in the bullshit. Uh, so uh, i am overall i am very pessimistic uh, other people are more optimistic and i hope you'll get them on uh, but i think uh, i i used to have a boss who said uh, he said I, I, the great thing about nick is whenever i have an idea i can go and see nick and in 10 minutes i know everything can possibly go wrong with it um and that didn't stop him doing it and sometimes he was right and i was wrong but uh, my one of my kind of you know i i am a little bit of a cassandra and uh, i think there are there really are some severe problems I think the solution starts with understanding the extent, the nature and the extent and the depth of the problems. And I think until we faced up to that kind of abyss, uh, we're not going to make any progress. Uh, whether we will make any progress once we have faced up to the abyss or whether we simply take a decisive step forward into it is, is I think a separate question, but I think we need to have that, that, that those discussions need to be had. And again, the problem is the world is watching and, and, forces that we might not necessarily approve of uh, are, are watching and are, are looking to take advantage of that situation. Indeed.
2: Uh, well, thanks for ending on a grim note there. Um, but uh, like, fantastic. Thanks so much.
0: That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thola Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.